What an honor to be back here at Life Springs. We have a great relationship with, with Bishop Ron and, and Donna and uh, all the team that's here. We just really are grateful for what God is doing in this place. But also, how many of you know the Constitution guarantees us freedom of speech? But he doesn't guarantee us a crowd. So I'm so glad y'all showed up this morning. Hallelujah. How many of you are planning a picnic tomorrow? Nobody's planning a picnic. To, how about today? Man, you guys must be true Texans. You're not standing out in that sun at all. So I'm trying to delay going home because my assignment is I got a barbecue tomorrow. So my wife says, you know, you need to barbecue tomorrow. I said, yeah, but everything I cook burns. And she goes, that's all right. We believe in sacrifices. Anyway, you know, anything. So, but it's a, it's a joy to be with you. Um, I just, uh, I, I was, as I was wrestling with this concept of changing things, I'm not going to change it because I really feel the direction of the Lord this morning. Uh, I was thinking about Memorial Weekend and uh, those that literally sacrificed their life, that you and I could sit here today, even as a veteran, we're able to sit here and we're able to enjoy the benefits uh, that's come through our service to the country. Uh, I was a Vietnam guy. Uh, I know Bishop Ron was a Vietnam guy, uh, and he got out of there as soon as he could with the help of the Army. Um, I stayed an extra two months because I had good duty. Uh, I played on the Army basketball team. And, uh, you know, somebody had to do that, so I said, okay, if you need me, uh, you know, I'll see if I fit the bill. Well, then when I got to Vietnam, I was in an administrative position, and found out that after I had been in the country three months, that a guy got to talking to me and he says, Terry, how tall are you? And I said, well, I'm six foot seven. He said, you know, you're legally, you're two inches too tall to be in the military. <laughs> they didn't tell me that before I went in. You know, they always tell you after the fact, now everybody been through the damage, you know. You know, the, the marching five miles and in the cold, you know, crawling through the mud. If you've, not, if you've not been in the Army, you don't know what it's like. You know, they make fun of your mama. You'll get that later on, okay? You know, because they always told you, there's your way, there's your mama's way, and then there's the Army way. You understand? That's kind of like the kingdom of God. You know, there's your way, your mama's way, but how many of you know God gets his way? Amen. Okay, you'll get that later, right? Okay, all right, but... Uh, but I was thinking about Memorial Weekend, and, and I thought about the colonels that I worked for. That was my job. In the daytime, I drove a full bird colonel around. And he was actually holding down a general slot, but they didn't have enough generals, so they put a full bird colonel in there. And he had five battalions under him that maintained all the helicopters in Vietnam. We had them up in the DMZ, and we had them in Central Country, we had them down the Mekong Delta. We even had a ship offshore uh, that made all the parts, and so he would go out there from time to time. But the first colonel that I worked for, he was an administrative colonel. In other words, you know, come in, give me my coffee, uh, let me have my morning newspaper, uh, I don't really care what's going on, everybody's taking care of their own business, that type of thing. And I remember he called me in one morning and he says, uh, he called me Tommy. He said, Tommy, he said, um, I got proof that you're taking drugs. Even if I was, I wasn't going to confess up to it at that point. 
He says, I said, well, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know who you got your information from, but I don't take drugs. Beer, yes. Whiskey, yes. But drugs, no. He goes, I've got proof. Well, man, that's a full board colonel telling you this, and you're only a spec four. And you're looking at him, and you're going, well, I'm sorry, sir. I said, uh, you know, I mean, I, I maintain my innocence. You know, I was OJ all the way. You know, I, I was an innocent. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. I don't care if the blood was all over me. I don't care. You know, anyway. I don't know what side of the fence you were on in that case, but anyway. But here, he says, I got proof. He said, I just read an article. I go, what's that article got to do with me? He said, do you drink coffee? Yes, sir. He said, there's a drug in coffee, so you're taking drugs. I go, well, I'm guilty, you know. But when this guy, under his leadership, it seemed like everything was just drab. There was no excitement. There was no joy. There was no fun. You had to work seven days a week. You got no time off unless you went on R&R, and you had to put in for that. Uh, he very seldom would he go and inspect the troops. So when he did, you know, it was just kind of a run through, and that was it. So you didn't, it really didn't matter if he was, he was there. He was just filling a position. And the productivity in that all five battalions was very, very low. There was no life at all. Why? Because in nature we had become communistic as a military source. Because all you do is work and there's no purpose in it. Doesn't matter what skills you have, doesn't matter what abilities you have, no matter, you couldn't even put yourself into it. And there was no creativity going on. This is just a job we do. So he, I worked for him about six months. And then he rotated out and a new colonel came in. Now, this new colonel was a lieutenant under General Patton. Now, it depends on what side of the fence you're on, whether you like General Patton or not. But General Patton was a, what they called a GI's general or a soldier's general. And this guy was much like him. He smoked. He didn't smoke it. He chewed an old stogie. If you don't know what a stogie is, Bishop will be glad to demonstrate for you sometime this week or in the next message. But he chewed a stokey every day, you know. He'd chew the thing. Never lit it, but he always chewed it down. But this guy spent very little time in the office, and he was always out amongst the troops. And once a month, he had a, a battalion. All the battalion leaders had to come to Saigon, and they had to sit down. And his question was not, what is happening with the equipment? He wanted to know what was happening with the, the soldiers. That was the primary thing of his. In, in that staff meeting, the second, first staff meeting he had, he said, first of all, everybody will get one day off. Everybody gets one day off. You just have to cover your area, and, but everybody gets a day off. So, man, everybody was happy about that. And then he said, if you go to chapel on Sunday morning, you get the rest of the day off on Sunday. Chapel attendance tripled. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it just tripled. I mean, boom, people came from everywhere. Man, these, these, these chaplains had no idea where people came from, you know. I mean, they were bringing dogs, cats, everything. They wanted everybody to have the day off, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But all of a sudden, I began to notice that the whole attitude, our basketball team, we never lost a game after that colonel came in. Never lost a game. We went undefeated. And it was only, I played 60 games that year, and in that section of time, that was 20 games that I had, and we didn't lose a one of them. 
Of course, we played the Vietnamese, and they were all half my size, so, you know, I got I to gotta put that disclaimer in there, all right? You know, I mean, I mean one day, I mean, this guy was coming down the court. He was about five foot seven. That was their tallest guy. He played center, and I was fixing to make him eat a basketball, and when I went up to block his shot, he stepped right around me because in international rules, you can take three steps when you're doing a layup. In our rules, you can only take two. So anyway, that's, uh, uh, we didn't lose a game. But I notice here that productivity, it almost, it, it went up 10 to 20% higher than where it should be. There was something that he did for the soldier that created this drive in them to want to have better feeling about their position, a better feeling about our company, a better feeling about their battalion, a better feeling, and everybody, I mean, everybody knew about the 34th General Support Group. Everybody knew about it. We helped guys. There was one guy that got hooked on heroin. And before, with the other colonel, if he'd have come in, they'd have arrested him, sent him off to some nut house, and that type of thing. But this guy, when he came in, this is the difference in the attitude. When this guy, we found out about him, they locked him into the barracks, kept him for one week, went through all the barracks, found all his hiding places where his dope is, and they took him cold turkey to get him off heroin. And that nobody turned him in. That's the difference in the attitude, you see. You know? And I thought about that, that in the kingdom of God, as we're celebrating this memorial thing, uh, a weekend, excuse me, this memorial weekend, that how many times do, have we just come kind of nonchalant into this thing with really no desire and no purpose? And one of the things that I have seen, because it's affected my life, I'm sure it's affected your life, is that at one time we had this, come on, I can take on King Kong. I don't care if he is a little bit bigger than I am. Come on, bring him on. I can take him on. How many of you know we were young and dumb and, dumb and zealous for the things of God? How many of you know that that same Holy Spirit that had you at 20, he's the same Holy Spirit that has you at 50, he's the same Holy Spirit that has you at 60. It's your engagement with that Spirit that determines what value you place on him in your life. You see, sometimes the greatest enemy is what we know and what we don't know. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Amen, Jerry. Keep it up. I believe I will. Thank you. All right. Hallelujah. I got a great crowd behind me. You know, y'all can't see them, but I can. I talked to Elisha. Okay, you'll get that later. All right. But here's what I want to point out to you: is that you go to the Scripture. And when you look in the scripture, these words continually pop up. War, fight, wrestle, good warfare. You see, and we think about this whole idea is that this thing is going to happen if we just try to be nice and good people. Somewhere along the line, we got to get a little radical about this thing. Somewhere along the line, we've got to get radical about Christianity because what has happened to us, those that have gotten radical have caused us to live under a cloud of darkness and oppression and we think it doesn't affect us, but it determines the ability for us to function in the kingdom of God because we're living under that oppression. 
And as a result of that, we have lost this ability to confront the principalities and the powers. We have lost that ability. And our prayer line now is, God, help me make it one more day. It's all about me. It's not about a collaborative group that takes on the principalities and powers and said, I'm sorry, in my region, you cannot have this. And what we have done is we have relegated one of the greatest disjustices to the body of Christ is the teaching on the gift of intercession. I'm an intercessor. Give me a break. That either makes you the Holy Ghost or Jesus. Because I only find two in the Scripture. The Bible says when the Holy Ghost intercedes, He intercedes through His body. And that's every one of us' responsibility to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And when we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, it's our responsibility to take that prophetic word and to use it as a weapon against the enemy. Because we're in a struggle. We're in a battle. We're in a war. And the war is not whether it's going to be the Democrats or the Republicans in office. The war is for the mind the soul and the heartbeat of not only of a nation but the kingdom of God itself Amen. that's the struggle that we have going on you see war war did not start on earth war started in the heavenlies Revelation chapter 12 gives us a very clear picture. talks about this conflict that went on in the heavenly realms. And we get tired of war. I saw those soldiers get tired in war. You go and talk to people that have fought in war. I can't imagine my 92-year-old mother, her husband was in World War II and he was there for four years. He served continually, never got to come home. Now today you serve three weeks, come home for a two-week vacation. We get weary in this thing. We get, we get torn down. We, get, we, we say, you know, I'm going to pray. And when people ask us to pray, we kind of roll our eyes and say, yeah, we're going to do that. But, you know, I mean. And so we say, you know, Lord, bless our food. And oh, by the way, I've got to pray about Bishop Ron's situation here. And I'm telling you, there is an all-out assault because when a nation becomes uncovered by the Spirit of God... It allows all demonic forces to come flooding in and we have not understood the magnitude of the spiritual conflict that's in front of us because we have been a nation that's been uncovered since 1960. Isaiah chapter 3 and chapter 4 talks about when women rule and talks about when the children rule the adults and on and on and on it goes. Now, I'm telling you, one of the things I read this week is that now babies are going to have to give permission to the adults to change their diaper. Well, I'm telling you, that's gone on for centuries. A baby knows how to tell mama that the diaper's bad. Okay. It's not the sweet aroma in the room either. But this idea, why? Why is this so important? Why is this idea of warfare so important? Because it reveals two things to us. Number one, it reveals that there is a hereafter. We're playing this game down here like there's no tomorrow. 
You know, we're just going to live here, we're going to live our life, eat, drink, and be married. That's the way life is. And we're going to throw God in there in a mix every once in a while. I'm telling you, if you're not preparing for the hereafter, you're in sad shape, my friend. But there's another thing about this thing that's in Revelation tells us. It also tells us there was a before. There was a before. Before the foundation of the world, before God ever created anything, there was this coup d'etat in the heavenly realms. I don't have time to get into that. But there was this overthrow. And how long it took God to prepare the angels to rout the enemies that were in the heavenly realm, we don't even give that consideration. Because when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created heaven, it was a utopia environment. It was peaceful. It was harmonious. It wasn't all the stuff that we see going on in the church today. It wasn't tattooed people. It wasn't rock out groups. It wasn't, uh, you know, whatever you feel like, that's the way it's going to be and you can make it and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't that at all. He had a certain criteria. He had a certain order. He had a certain system that he put in place and he said, this is the way it's going to be in all my environment until, until, Now, did God know what was in the heart of Lucifer? Did God understand what was in his heart? I'm convinced he understood it, but how many of you know God is long-suffering, giving him ample opportunity to repent and change his ways and get back into his position? But he didn't. So what happened? God had to do something that he didn't want to do. The psalm says he teaches our hands to war. He had to teach the angels how to war. And we don't know how long it took him to teach that. It wasn't an overnight thing. I mean, you know, some of us have been on this journey for a long time, and we're still trying to figure out spiritual warfare. How many of you know it, it takes a little time to learn the warfares of God? You see, the devil needs to understand something. And we see this continually. You see, the devil's defeat, he was defeated at the cross, He's defeated at the thousand-year reign of Jesus, and he will be finally defeated in the lake of fire. Now, I got a question for you this morning. Whose team are you on? When I was younger, I wasn't as tall as I am now and not nearly as handsome. Johnny, no comment. And I remember, actually, I was short. I didn't start growing until I got in high school. I went from 5'8 to 6'5 in high school, four-year period. I couldn't chew and walk at the same time. I tried to learn to water ski during that time. I swallowed half the lake. That's how bad it was for me. You that don't know about water skiing, uh, Bishop will explain that later. But one of the things I understood is that when we would go out on the playground, there would always be these two studs and everybody wanted them to be on their team. So they would be the captains, remember this? And they'd say, oh, I pick you. And the other guy'd say, I pick you, and I pick you, and I pick you. And and they're getting down to just you. (laughs) And they're looking at you and the only other person beside you is a girl. And they pick the girl. How many of you know that does a lot for your real psyche growing up, you know? 
I've been outdone by a woman again. Hallelujah, you know. And you see, that's the way it is in the kingdom. See, God has chosen us over our enemy. And so we look in this thing and, and, and we know that this conflict is going on and this battle is going on. My friend, we cannot forget that we are in a war. Let me remind you that there are things that are injurious in a war. There are things that happen to us. We get tired of fighting these battles again and again. I want to tell you, one of the greatest things that you can do for yourself is if you want to win the war without, you've got to conquer the war within. Until you defeat that thing, that war without is going to be bigger and larger. Now begin to look in the scripture in this. I want you to turn to Judges 3.31. What time do we normally get out of here? That is a dangerous thing to say. Now look at this. It says in Judges 3.31, it says, After him was Shamgar. Everybody say Shamgar. How many of you have ever named your kids Shamgar? <laughs> you know, how many of you had that name, you just meditate on that name, Shamgar? It's only mentioned two times in the Bible, that name, Shamgar. Shamgar, it means a cupbearer or one who is a fleer, or it also means, from the Hebrew word Samgar, it means a sword, a sword. So when we look in this here, we see Shamgar, he was the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. You see, you have to defeat something before you can deliver something. Now look at this. We see that Shamgar was the third judge in the book of Judges. And the pattern in Judges is the children of Israel would do evil, they'd go into captivity, then God would raise up a deliverer and they would get delivered. That was the pattern. That was their conflict. That was their warfare. But the environment in chapter 5 and verse 8, it says... The environment they lived in, it says they chose new gods. The NEB Bible says they consorted with demons. The Jerusalem Bible says those that should stand for God were dumb. <laughs> then was war in the gates. Now I know Bishop Ron, he's talked a lot about gates. But brother, when there is a war in the gates, that is a wrestle for authority. That's what's going on. And he understood this. He says, was there a shield or a spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? Now I'll get to that in just a minute. Because here's what you've got to do. Now here's what I'm going to give you. I want to give you some steps to recover your will to fight. Hopefully you'll get this this morning. I'll try to get through as much as I can. But the first thing that the enemy does is his strategy is to make you inoperative. In other words, he wants to shut you down. So it's not what happens in us, it's what happens around us that begins to shut us down. My mother-in-law, many years ago, she got sick with cancer. 
And she had cancer in her lungs. She went to the upper room in Israel. That was her life's dream to go to Israel. While in the upper room, uh, there's an old pastor from Houston, Brother Barry, was with him on this trip. And he's kind of this happy guy. And you, know, you wouldn't put him in the category of a prophet or spiritual or anything. He was just a good man of God. But that day, the Spirit of God moved upon him and says, pray for Ethel. He says, well, Ethel, they were taking communion in the upper room. He says, Ethel, I'm supposed to pray for you. And she goes, okay. Prayed for her, and the cancer left her lungs. And for the next two years, she did more in two years than she had done in 30 before that. And then it came back, but it never came back in the lungs. It came back in some other parts of her organs. And she eventually died with it. Now, we're in this time. This is when the faith message was really rocking. How many of you remember the faith message? Boy, I mean, it was moving. So we are, bless God, she's going to live. She's not going to die. You know, we're the head, not the tail. You know, we're overcomers and we're victorious. And all those things that we heaped that are ours by design, we had to keep talking ourselves into it. I listened to some of our songs we sing. Who are we trying to convince? God? Or are we trying to convince ourselves? Just a thought. So when I begin to see this, when all of a sudden she died, I mean, we did everything. We, you know, my father-in-law, you know, he called us to the middle of the living room and we joined hands and we prayed. And he said, we're going to tell the devil to get out of here. So, man, he went to the front door and told the devil, leave in Jesus' name. So we did everything. Man, we were just believing, standing strong. And then she passed. We didn't want to hear anything about faith. We didn't want to hear anything about love. We didn't want to hear about anything about believing. We were still Christians. We didn't want to hear any of that. It knocked us for a loop. See, it didn't happen in us. It happened to us. And so I remember at our funeral, we're wrestling, we've had these discussions, and I remember our pastor, he was a big faith man at that time, and he walked out of the hospital the day that she died, and he said, the reason that she's dying is because there's too much unbelief in that room. That was the words that my pastor said to us. Nailed. And so I'm thinking this through. So we're sitting at the funeral, and Pastor Austin Wilkerson, which was our pastor for many years from the Evangelistic Temple in Houston, Pastor Buddy's pastor, he did the service. And he's speaking along. I have no idea what he said other than this phrase, because this set me on a course to recovery. And here's what he said. He says, somewhere between the exertion of our faith in the sovereignty of God, we do not understand, and that's what makes him God. The weariness on us is trying to figure out where we messed up. I was thinking about this the other day. According to the standards that we have set today, that Jesus would not have been successful in his ministry. 
Because he was only here three years. He must have had sin in his life. That's why he was taken out. He must have blasphemed the Holy Ghost. That's why he's gone. That's what we'd hear today. Well, God had so much more for him, but his, his life was cut short. Why? Because we don't understand death. We have to continually wrestle with it, and it wears us out. The day we accept it is the day we are victorious over it. Because your faith should not be based upon earthly manifestations. Your faith should be on a heavenly residence. You look at the early, just go to Hebrews 11. They were not talking about here. They were talking about another place. They were talking something they saw in the spirit realm. And when we look at this, when we begin to see this war that's in the gates, that's taking place around us. And I want to say this to you prophetically. I thought about this driving over to yesterday. And I feel like the Lord downloaded this. What you went through in the physical is a condition that what the church has been going through. And as God has been restoring you, he's restoring this fellowship to its ultimate destiny. It's not a gathering of more people in the pews. It's the production to produce nations for the kingdom of God. That's the destiny of life springs. Are y'all all right? Y'all look at me rather strange. Shall we dismiss and go eat bananas? All right, now look at this. Shamgar, he was made inoperative. Look what happens. It says he was the son of Anath. Anath, what in the world? Anath was a Phoenician goddess. She was over, she was the goddess of sex and the goddess of war. Oh boy. We don't even know how to define those two terms today. We don't even know what that means. We have a nation today that Anything sexual is absolutely permitted and you cannot question it because if you do, it's considered old school or it's considered hate and you can be put in prison for a hate crime. That's how well they've done it. That goddess has not gone away. And we see her still operating here. And so one of the reasons that God has released the apostolic or apostleship in the earth today is to recover the possessions that belong to God. So that you and me and I can move back into our place of dominion. So Shamgar, he's the son of Anath. In other words, he was like Daniel and the three Hebrew children of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was named Belteshazzar. All those names tied them and coveted them to their gods. And they all four refused that name. But we don't remember them by their Hebrew names. We only remember them by their Pagan names. Why? Because we have been victimized the same way. 
That's why we have to have teaching in the body of Christ. This is your identity. This is your identity. This is your identity. This is who you are. We have to keep telling people that over and over again. Why? Because those gods surround us. This is the environment that surrounded Shamgar. This is the environment that he was in. His father had maybe even entered into a, a, a spiritual union with those gods. We don't know. But one thing I know is that just by taking on the name, Shamgar had to live in that environment. And he had to contend with it again and again. David Wilkerson commissioned a book. Actually, it's two books. And it's a guy by the name of William Gurnell, or Gurnall. And it was called Spiritual Warfare. It was such a classic. And it was by, Gurnall was a man that was asked by the Puritans to go to the United States, what became the United States, to the New Land with them. And he was a priest in the Church of England. So he went to prayer. And as he prayed, the Lord spoke to him and says, no, I want to use you right here. And so he went to them and said, I'm going to stay. They all thought he was out of his mind. He'd lost God's will. They were going to kill him, et cetera, et cetera. But he stayed there, and God revealed some tremendous insights about spiritual warfare in the midst of a church setting. This whole idea here about and how the church itself, the very instrument that God used to confront principalities and powers becomes the, the housing place for those principalities and powers. You see, we don't understand what influence we're under. It made them inoperative. It made them to lose the will to fight. How many of you would say, my prayer life is not what it used to be? I may even say, I don't have the intensity that I used to be. I'm, I was telling a Bishop last night, I'm working with a group called, they're 35-ish. And uh, we get together and we have a time of just dialogue, just interaction one with another. And our theme this semester was this, convenience or consecration. Because we all have been sacrificed to the God of convenience. To the God of convenience. If it's convenient, I'll go to the house of the Lord. If it's convenient, I'll go to church this morning. Not understanding that God called this meeting. Bishop didn't call this. The leaders didn't call this meeting. Tradition didn't call Sunday morning meeting. God called this meeting. How do we know that? He gave us a word this morning. Amen. He gave us another word this morning. He gave us tongues and interpretation this morning. God shows up where the Holy Spirit shows up where God calls the meeting. Okay, I thought I'd... Terry, they're not going to like that. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll back off. Now look at this. Because what happens is is that we confuse ownership with stewardship. You're not going to be judged on ownership 
because as a Christian, you don't own anything anyway. You're going to be judged on your stewardship. What did I give you and what did you do with it? So he makes us inoperative. Now, you get around other Christians, you speak the language. You speak the language. You know, in Hebrews 6, it tells us not to be slothful. The word slothful means I'm active on the outside, but I'm going nowhere on the inside. Doesn't mean getting sloppy. Doesn't mean wearing blue jeans with holes in them. Doesn't mean that at all. It means that I'm given the appearance that I'm really on fire with God when in the truth, I've just barely got ambers burning inside of me. And how do I know that? Because let a speaker stand up and say something, and if you're offended, it's a sign you only got ambers because you're not looking to find the log to throw on the fire. Are you all all right? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I think you got rocks this morning. Why? Because you see, if you got God in you, you don't have smoke. you got fire. And it's consuming everything that's around you that's not of him. And it's a horrible process to go through. I don't care where you are, what stage, your maturity level, there always comes a time when these things come creeping back in and God says, i got to burn them up. You're going, please, God, have mercy. So then you, you, you feel this burning going on and it's not a burning to go do something. It's a burning inside. Something is being dislodged from you that God can consume you again. And then you go to church services and you, you stand up and they start singing the song, send the fire, Lord, just send the fire. And you're going, no, don't send the fire. Please don't send the fire. You see, because what we have done in charismaticism and Pentecostalism and in modern era is we've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, but we left out the fire. And the baptism is not complete until the fire does its work. I'll move along. Inoperative. The second thing that I see is what I call insensitivity. Insensitivity. He looked at the conditions around him and he became callous. Nothing is happening. We have to entertain now in the presence of God. We've used prophecy to entertain. We've used the move of the Spirit to entertain. You know, we throw cloths on people and we step on people that the Holy Ghost is on them and we get drunk and all those things are okay with me. I have no problem with that. But when that's what we're pursuing, then it's setting a condition that the Holy Ghost doesn't do any of that in a meeting. We didn't have a meeting and God didn't show up. It's based on the external and there's sometimes when God shuts up and that bothers us. I have leaders call me all the time. They say, Terry, what is God saying? I go, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, okay, I'll talk to you later. I've got to call another prophet. <laughs> Let him come up with something. You see. Why? Because we've conditioned ourselves that God is moving, 
but we're not moving at the same pace. Where is God moving in your life? Maybe he's not moving at all. It's okay. I give you permission. It's okay. Now, Bishop may get up and say, I don't give you permission, but that's all right. He's been wrong before. No, but seriously. Why? Because, but make sure that it's the environment around us that we become callous that when God is moving, we're so hard-hearted towards it that we can't really sense what God's doing. God's trying to break through with that. He's trying to break us out that he might break in, that he might break over each one of us. Are you with me? Now look at this. Look at this. You see, the greatest fear in the church world today is a thing called boredom. If they come to church and they are bored, they won't come back. So we have to come up with these ways. We have to change the platform. We have to come up with lights. I mean, I watched The Voice the other night, and I felt like I was at some of the mega churches. So we have to come up with all this stuff. I may have told you the story. I was down in Columbia, and a young man got saved under our ministry when I first started going there, and now he's pastoring a large church. So he goes, oh, Brother Terry, it's so good to see you. I want you to come and speak at our church. I said, okay. So he set, we set it up, and I went there. And so, man, they start out with praise and worship, and here comes the, the red, the green, the blue, and the white lights. I felt like I was at a viewing room in a at a funeral home, you know, because that's what they use. And so, you know, I'm looking at this, you know. Then all of a sudden, a disco ball drops out of the ceiling. And literally going around, staying alive, staying alive. And uh, I guess that's what they were trying to say. Stay alive, folks. We will get through this, you know. And then, then when the music got quieter, here comes the smoke. I felt like I was in a London fog. And so then he gets through, takes his offering. He says, now we're glad to have Brother Terry. I'm saying, thank you very much. So I got up and shared, and we had a good meeting. Afterwards, they always have fellowship. So I went back, and he's all excited. You know, boy, wasn't that a great meeting? Brother Terry, it was great. Wasn't it, wasn't it? it was great. I said, yeah, it was good. <laughs> he said, uh, well, tell me what you think about it. I go, well, beans you asked. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what was with all the colored lights? And what about the disco ball? And what about the fog on the, on the stage? I said, what was that all about? And he goes, well, we were just trying to create an atmosphere for God. I said, serious? He said, yeah. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I says, you know who used to do that? He says, who? And I says, that Catholic church down on the square. They built buildings to make people believe that's the only place God was. And I said, you have fallen under that same spirit. And he's a young spiritual son of mine, so I could say that to him. He goes, oh, my God. He said, that's not what we want. I said, well, that's what you got, and guess what you're going to produce? That's what you're going to produce. Will that conquer the nation? No. No. And here's what I said. He said, well, what would you do different? I go, being you asked. I said, let me ask you a question. How did you get to where you are today? 
Well, tell me the early stages. He goes, oh, man, we were in love with Jesus. We'd get together, and we would fast and pray for two or three days before the meeting. And, man, he said, we'd go to the meeting, and God would just show up. And then people just came here, people came from there, people came from here. People just started coming. I said, really? I said, well, I have a suggestion for you. He goes, what's that? I go, why don't you go back to that? Maybe God would just show up again. Now you're trying to create an environment, and he can pick and choose. I don't like it today. Smoke didn't roll out the right way. And besides that, you get one of your green lights is burnt out. I'm not going. I said, no. You see, all this, what this does and those settings do is make us insensitive to the Spirit of God. Because we cannot discern what is God and what is not and what is me. See? And so we have a church today that talks about God, but there's no sensitivity to the God. And so instead of God speaking, we have to keep talking you in to you believing in God. God is good. God is love. But those that know him, you don't have to convince them. They know. And those people will do mighty exploits. So I've I got to move along, so quit interrupting me, would you please? Because here in, in sensitivity, here's what happens. We're always looking for a new path. We're always looking for a new venue. May I say it like it is? We're always looking for another church. Instead of staying planted where God has positioned us. You see, what happens to us when there's insensitivity, we're on the path and we're off the path. We're up one day and down the next. We're in one day and out the next. We're, we're, all this takes place. Now look at this. It says in Judges chapter 5 and verse 6, here's what it says. In the days of Shamgar, everybody say Shamgar. Son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the main roads were empty. Here's what it says in another translation. The Amplified says this. The highways were deserted or the caravans were no more. He says travelers went by the back roads. He said, the Amplified says, winding paths because of Canaanite robbers on the highways. About two years ago, three years ago, I came and I had a meeting with the men at Brother John Debbie's restaurant and we talked about what was the job of Lucifer in heaven. And we always have been taught that it was worship. And he was one of the worship leaders. But the Bible says that he was a trader. He was a merchant. And one of the things that we see today in the church world today is there's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's a Babylonian church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of kings and priests. But Revelation 18 says the Babylonian church is made up of kings and merchants. The Canaanites were merchandisers. They were materialistic people. And they, whatever it took, they would rob you. 
Every day you are robbed in this system because the Canaanite gods are running this nation. Now it's being confronted, and that's what the war is going on right now in this nation. It's not a material thing, it's a spiritual thing. There's a battle going on. But every day, they take money out of your pocket, and you don't even know it. When you pay 45 cents for for a gallon of gas and just taxes alone, you're being robbed. Because all that was told, this is what we'll do, and this is what we're going to do, and none of it was lived out. They voted down the renovation of the Astrodome. Went back to the commissioner's court, and the commissioner's court says, oh, we got another way to keep it. In other words, it really didn't matter what the people said. And sure enough, they finagled it. Now it's going to be a park and some kind of parking garage, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because it doesn't matter what we think. It's what they want to do, and there's a spirit behind that. And the church cows down and does nothing about it. Why? Because we've lost our sensitivity to the rights that God has given to us as his people, and we suffer under it. Well, you know, things are good now. Things are good. Yeah, because right now you may be on that path, but the next time you may be over on this path, and the next time you may be back on this path. The Bible says that God takes and makes the crooked way straight. The crooked way. And it's caused us to lose our desire to fight. We don't want to fight for ourselves. We don't want to fight for our marriages. We don't want to fight for our children. We don't want to fight for our church. We don't want to fight for our region. Why? Because all this has happened to us. Why? Because those that have a crossless understanding of the kingdom of God have become the vocal voice, the vocal voice for the nation, and it's affected us. Let me give you another thing. Here's what Shamgar did, and here's what I help you. He took initiative. He didn't have a great, oh, thus saith the Lord, or I'm just praying about it, or I hope so. He understood who he was. He understood that he was king material. He understood that, that this, this, what my daddy's been doing is surely not working. This is something that is inside of me. I'm going to do something about it. And so he took initiative. And he, when he st- stood up, you see, why? Because what is worse than being defeated is being satisfied with defeat. We've justified our lack of victory. That's why we come to church on Sunday morning to remind us that we can be victorious but the truth is, we ought to come to Sunday morning with victory already on our heart and mind. Yes. You see. But we've become satisfied. I just came back from Bolivia. Uh, first time I've been in Bolivia in 35 years. Wow, what a powerful time. Ten-day summit. They brought people from the Amazon uh, working in the jungles. and They said, Brother Terry, you want to go out to our village with us? I go, how do you get there? They go, well, you take a bus and then you get in a dugout canoe. I've heard about your dugout canoes. They're nothing but tree with bark removed, cut in half. I said, let me ask you a question. Are there piranhas? Oh, yes, there's a lot of piranhas, big piranhas. I go, okay, that's one strike against you. 
And I said, what about anacondas? He goes, oh, yeah, we have anacondas. They found a calf in one the other day. I go, that's a second strike against you. I ain't coming. You come to me. I'm not going to you. I am too big a meal for some anaconda. He lived for years off of me. But in Bolivia, it's funny. You go down to the town square, they have all these statues of generals and and leaders, and they have their little statues of gods and all this. And uh, to commemorate the wars. But here's the funny thing about it. The people are consumed with sorrow. Why? Because every war they fought in Bolivia, they lost. They've never won a war. So now we're building statues to commemorate wars we've lost. Now we're taking them down. Okay, we'll leave that alone, all right? Okay. Depends on what flag you raise. But anyway, okay. Now look at this. Sorrow dominates a person that is satisfied with defeat. You go in some churches, it looks like they've all been baptized in lemon juice. How are you doing today? I've got the joy of the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to God. Sorrow dominates us. Sorrow, you go into some home, sorrow dominates the home. You go into some business, sorrow dominates the business. Why? Because it's not that the glass is half full, it's always the glass is half empty. Try that in your business. Well, you really don't want this car. I mean, after all, the seats ripped. You know, and by the way, I hear a knock in that engine there. You know, and I think they got sawdust in the transmission. But if you want to buy it, that's okay. See, what happens is it, it, it stifles initiative. And when you stifle initiative... You stifle creativity, and when you stifle creativity, you silence the prophetic. Every one of us can prophesy in this house. I appreciated what Bishop did today. He's training you as prophetic people. Why? Because as it was in the beginning in the heavenly realm, the reason we are here today is because prophetic started in heaven, and it will continue for eternity. All right, I'll hurry. Y'all all right? Here, let me give you another one, okay, because here's what happens. He took initiative. I love this. You ever had Mormons, elders, show up at your door? You know, they're young guys, and they call them elders. That's a, I still haven't registered all that. But I invite them in. So we sit down, we start dialogue. We'll talk, you know. I know what they're after, and I know what I'm after. I'm after confusion. They're after a subject. <laughs> And, uh, but the one thing I say to them that most of the church world has lost is I say, I appreciate your initiative. You gave up two years of your life for a cause you believe in. Whether it's right or wrong, you gave up two years of your life. Try that in the modern church today. Which one of us would give up two years to see that God's purpose will be fulfilled at Life Springs Church? Here's another one. 
Because out of initiative comes the next one. I call it inventive. I, I don't have an ox goat. I wish I did. But I stopped at a couple antique shops coming over here yesterday. And I walked in and I said to the guy, and one guy, man, he was older than dirt. I mean, this guy was old. And I looked at him, he had an old crusty cowboy hat on, and he's sitting there counting his money. And I said, hey, you wouldn't happen to have an ox goad. He goes, what's an ox goad? I go, okay, he doesn't have one then. An ox goad was a tool that, this is not an ox goad, by the way, this is a blowgun. This came from the Amazon. And uh, I used to have poison darts to go with it, but... Uh, after I hit my wife a few times, she, went, she made me get rid of them. But anyway, this is a blowgun. This literally is a blowgun. It came from a tribe down the Amazon. But an ox goat is similar to this. It's, how many have ever heard of a cow poacher? Well, well prodder is what they call them. Okay. Well, that's kind of what an ox goat is. Now, the ox goat, it had a point on the end. And whenever the ox would slow down, he'd, he'd punch them again, and they'd start moving again. You know? But then on the bottom, there was a blade because in, as they were plowing, at times the dirt would collect on the plow and they'd have to stop and knock the dirt off of that blade. Now, the reason they had a ox goat, he had an ox goat, is because the Philistines had taken away all the blacksmiths in Israel. There were no blacksmiths. So there was nobody to work the iron and it says in 1 Samuel 13, you read it there, verse 19 through 22, it says the reason they did it because they were afraid Israel would make spears and swords, weapons. And so what does Samgar do? do? He, he takes initiative. Once he took the initiative, he got creative. He got inventive. So he takes the ox goat, takes this thing, and he goes out, what does he start doing? Man, he starts whipping the snot out of the, out of the, out of the uh, Philistines. I mean, he just whips them, 600 of them. When was the last time you took on 600 of your enemy? Huh? You see, your situation is not in your present mindset. The answer is in a mindset when you take the first step initiating it. You see, we're trying to recover yesterday when God's trying to move us to tomorrow. We're trying to say, well, if it was just like it used to be, God said it's not going to be that way. I've already left that era. I'm moving into another area. And so when God says this morning to Life Springs Church that I'm moving you into a Jehoshaphat season, we've got to understand what that means. And I submit that to the elders to wrestle that out. Because it's not going to look like what we used to do. It's going to look like what he wants it to look like today. So you see, initiative brings forth, now get this, it brings forth what you already have. But you can't see it because you keep saying, if I only had this, if I only had that, if I only understood this, if I only could do this, if I could only do that and this and that and that, we go on and we keep looking for something on the outside when in reality it's already resident on the inside and that's the weapon that God wants to use. 
It's your oxbill. I took this thing to a high school. They had a career day, so they let me go as an anthropologist. First, I had to look up the definition of what an anthropologist was, because I couldn't go as a pastor, you know. I couldn't go as an apostle. That really blew their mind. So they said, you're going to come as an anthropologist. So I got in, and I talked to him. and I said, okay. And I put balloons on a, a board over there, and I said, okay, whoever hits the balloon gets the prize. Those, those kids, I'm sure glad I was not standing there because I would have never died. They couldn't hit a balloon to save their soul. Why? Because it was a weapon they were not familiar with. Two things about the ox code that we need to understand. When you take initiative, the point gives you guidance. And the blade keeps you plowing. Because you're not going to see any seed go in the ground until you plow. And when we start looking at the plowing stage, we say, listen, if it's not instant fruit or hybrid, we don't want it. Why? Because we're a world of instant. Instant potatoes. Instant oatmeal. How many of you know instant oatmeal is not nearly as good as the regular oatmeal? Okay, half of you agree. But if you're a millennial, you don't know anything but instant. <laughs> you know, your meals are prepared for you by HEB. You know, Kroger's getting in on the act now. Walmart's doing it. You know, Walmart's trying to compete with Amazon now. I mean, why? Because it's an instant world that we live in. We don't like processes. But once there's initiative, that inventive juice, that creativeness inside of you is now ready to be released. Okay, now I'll give you this last one. I'll give it to you. And it's this, which is similar to what I've been saying. It's your inherent gift. It's the anointing in you. It's not Bishop Ron's anointing. It's not Pastor Bill's anointing. It's not Pastor David's anointing. It's not Brother John's anointing or Debbie's anointing. It's your anointing. You see, you have an unction from the Holy One. And by what he did this morning, he's trying to get you comfortable, not only with the Holy Ghost, but the deposit he makes called the anointing in our life, that whenever we're at Walmart, we can sense the same thing. You see, because what causes the church to multiply was the anointing. Wasn't preaching. They used preaching, but it was the anointing. Why? Because the anointing routed the devils, and there was a lot of them. The anointing was, was, was mixed with authority. Well, actually, it was authority. It was all those things that anointing does. I'm not here to talk about anointing. But there is, why? When I go into it and work with church leadership, I say to them, let me ask you two questions. Number one, what is your attraction value? The reason you sit here this morning, there's an anointing on this house that has an attraction to you. An attraction to you. Well, I just like Bishop. He's a good old boy, and man, he's a good guy, and he tells good stories, and all that kind of... No, there's something deeper in him that has attracted you. Saying you could take that thing down to your business. What is the attraction value of your business? What is the anointing on that business? Because those are the customers that you will attract. 
Why do some students go to the University of Texas, God forsaken? I mean, God bless them. Anyway, um, why do some students go to Texas A&M? Why do some go? Why? Because there's an unction that's there that attracts them, that has value to their life. People will not come and stay if they can't find the value right away. And where there is attraction value, the second thing you need to understand is what is the unified objective? In other words, what is my anointing connect with Pastor Bill? What is my anointing that connects with Bishop Ron? What is my anointing that connects with Brother John? Why? Because the anointing is not just individualistic. The anointing is magnified when it's collective. Are you all right? And so your anointing contributes to somebody else's anointing. And somebody else's anointing contributes to somebody else's anointing. That is an inherent gift that is inside of you. You've had initiative, there's now inventiveness, and now there is an inherent gift that is your anointing, that is specific to you, that is connected to the whole, that begins to route and begins to revive that ability for God to function and do what he wants to do. Are you all all right? Nod your head yes, please. Not like you're going to sleep. All right. Why? Because your sphere is your anointing. Your sphere. Now listen to me. Once you get in that anointing, instructions become common. I'll say that with all due spiritual respect I can. To hear from God is not the hard thing. It's not the hard thing. The timing of God is the difficult thing. You see, because when God gives instructions, he never gives us instructions without giving the accommodating anointing to complete it. For the last three years, I've been going through, first I started going through a transition in my life. Then that shifted from transition to transformation in the season of my life. It was a miserable time. Horrible. I can sympathize with you. Because I was miserable. I'd cry out to God and I heard nothing. Didn't want to pick up my Bible. But in order to be religious, I had to do that. I had to read the Bible, got nothing. Turn on the radio, all the songs were gloom, despair, and agony on me. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. You know? It's a horrible time. And I called a friend of mine, and we went to sit down, and I began to talk to him. And I said to him, Jim, I said, I think God's through with me. How do you know when God's through with you? He looked at me, and he goes, were you six foot under? I said, no, I'm six seven. And he goes, no, no, are you six foot under? I, I didn't catch what he was talking about. And then he goes, are you dead? I go, no. He said, then God isn't through with you yet. And he started just sharing some things with me. And I realized that, okay, if he's not through with me, then he's got an assignment that I need to understand. And I've got to hear what that assignment is. And the Lord says, quit asking to do something. Ask me what I'm doing to you. 
I didn't like that. Because how many of you know when you ask somebody something and they tell you the truth, you get mad? How many of you know the truth will make you miserable before it sets you free? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? And so I'm going through this thing in my life, you know. And then you go down, and I'm in a prophetic meeting in Florida, and, and a prophet comes in, and she's a little girl, about, you know, five foot tall. And she looks at me, and she goes, the Lord says to you, and I go, oh, here we go again. She goes, expansion, expansion, expansion. I go, you got to be kidding me. I want to quit, quit, quit. And she said, I see the Lord this, so you're going to be a father of nations, all this kind of stuff. And I go, oh, this is crazy. So the next day at the night meeting, the prophet that spoke in the night meeting was not in the meeting the day before. And I'm sitting there, and she's going through her message, and she just says, stand up here. So I stood up there, and she goes, I hear the Lord saying, I'm enlarging you. <laughs> Come on, God, I've just been working on that, you know? I mean, he says, yeah, he's, he's getting ready. He says, your, your anointing is too large for the places you've been going. That time is over. I'm going, man, these two got together, and they were comparing notes, or they were talking. But how many of you know the Holy Ghost, when he gets on your trail... He use a jackass if he can use anything. It doesn't matter to him. And I came over and my head was spinning. Still things had not changed. But all of a sudden God says, Terry, this is what I put in you. This is that inherent gift that's inside of you. This is the anointing I have. Quit looking for an assignment and hear what I am doing to you. And when you get that, you will know what the assignment is. Wow. It floored me. Because you see, the job of the enemy, it's called anti-Christo. It's called non-anointing. And the environment that we're in is an antichrist system and an antichrist spirit that has come to deplete you of your anointing. See, anointing is not just the guy who lays hands on the sick. Anointing is a guy who wakes up every morning and says, here I am, Lord, use me. That's the anointing. In the place that you have assigned me, I will use the anointing for your glory. That inherent gift, start embracing it again. Nurture the anointing that is in your life again. The more you nurture that anointing, the fuller it becomes. Because that's what God has given us as a tool to overcome the system that we live in. I finish with this, and it's this. I want you to be an instrument. It says about Shamgar, he saved Israel. He saved Israel. What if he said, I'll save Liberty Hill through Life Springs Church? Leander through Liberty Church, Life Springs Church. What if he was to say those things? Could he do those things? 
Knox translation says this, he too was a champion of Israel. Wow. You see, today, we're always looking, but never finding. We're always wanting a hero. When God says, I am your hero. I am the one. I had to get a whole new perspective on Jesus again. And by getting a new perspective on Jesus, I realized he has called me to be a father to the nations. I didn't ask for this. But that's what he said. What has he said about you? Because when you embrace it, you start the recovery process with the will to fight. Would you stand with me, please? A farmer goes to the field every day. Every day, he just goes to the field. He doesn't make the plant grow. He just shows up. He sees the condition of the field, what it's like. What's going on? What's happening out in the field? Are some of the plants drying up? Why are they drying up? Are the plants, what stage are they? And he, he goes out and he analyzes the field. He looks all over it. You see, why? Because when he goes out, his eyes are tuned to see what's in that field. But what's happened to us today is we're always looking and never finding.